If your happy ending is no more joint pain, please try Sierra Sil with a money-back guarantee. It's all-natural joint pain relief that's changed our lives. Sierra, like the mountains, and Sil, like silicon. Go to sierrasil.com. Use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, I'm Erin, and welcome to Drift. I'm delighted to share with you another tale from L. Frank Baum, who brought the world the Wizard of Oz. The other story from him that you'll find here. Among the more than 100 podcast episodes of Drift is called The Glass Dog, and I know you'll love it too, just as much as you do this one, titled The Magic Bonbons. Oh, how Mr. Baum loved to write of wizards, and how their works can go quite sideways at times. Before we get to this story, though, let me take a moment to mention that Drift is made possible by Envy Pillow. I first found Envy Pillow several years ago when I was suffering stressed neck pain from leaning into a microphone for hours on the radio every day and the pains in the neck that come with hosting a radio show. Thank goodness I found this pillow. Each Envy pillow is certified organic, infused with copper, antimicrobial and collagen-boosting copper. And you can get 10% off anything you choose at their website using the code word DRIFT. And these luxurious and long-lasting pillows even come with a guarantee. Learn more in the morning at Envy Pillow, E-N-V-Y Pillow. Dot com and sleep with the best. You'll have a taste. The whole story of the magic bonbons in a moment. But as we get set to share that, let's relax completely wherever you are. Whether you're listening on a plane, a bus, in your bed, in a chair, wherever you want to relax right now, it all starts with the breath. So let's do that. Please take a deep breath in, all the way to your toes. Hold it, and release, nice and slowly. Now let's do it again. Inhale, and exhale. Great. Let's go back to those toes. Wiggle them if you can. Then swivel your ankles, first one way, and now the other. Good. How about your calves? Are they feeling heavy, sinking into whatever is supporting you right now? Oh, they should be. Let your thighs do the same. No more holding on. This is a place to let go. Same with your backside. Just imagine the indentation in a cloud of feathers that you're making right now. And it's perfect. How about your back? Oh, just letting those muscles relax. And then moving up your spine to your neck. That overworked, tensed up neck of yours. Whether you lie on your back or your side or even your front. Just let it release. Now to your shoulders. Same thing. Let them drop. 
so that they no longer hold control over your arms. Down those arms, all the way to your hands. Stretch your fingers out and wiggle them if you can, sort of waving goodbye to the stress and worries of the day. They will wait. And finally, let's go to your head, to your face. Let your jaw hang limp, your tongue heavy in your mouth. Your eyes are in a relaxed position, and your eyelids are heavy. Those eyebrows, make sure they're done for the day as well. Now that you're completely loose from head to toe, let's do one more breath in. And now as you exhale, think these words. I am safe. I am loved. I am at peace. And if you're ready, let's drift. There lived in Boston a wise and ancient chemist by the name of Dr. Dawes, who was known to dabble a little in magic. Now there also lived in Boston a young lady by the name of Clarabelle Suds, who had a lot of money, not so much wit, and a very intense desire to perform upon the stage. So Clarabelle went to Dr. Dawes one day and said, I can neither sing nor dance. I cannot recite verse nor play upon the piano. I am no acrobat nor leaper nor high kicker. Yet I wish to go upon the stage. Oh, Dr. Dawes, what shall I do? Hmm. Are you willing to pay for such accomplishments? asked the wise chemist, stroking his goatee. Certainly, answered Clarabelle, jingling her purse. Then come back to me tomorrow at two o'clock. All that night he practiced what is known as chemical sorcery, so that when Clarabelle Suds came next day at two o'clock, he showed her a small box filled with compounds that looked very much like French bonbons. This is a progressive age, said the old man, and I flatter myself your Dr. Dawes keeps up with all the latest trends. Now, one of your old-fashioned sorcerers would have made you some nasty, bitter pills to swallow, but I have taken into account your taste and convenience. Here are some magic bonbons. If you eat this one with the lavender color, you will be able to dance as lightly and gracefully as if you had been trained a lifetime. After you consume the pink confection, you will sing like a nightingale. Eating the white one will enable you to become the finest public speaker in the land. The chocolate piece will charm you into playing the piano better than the greatest pianist of our time. While after eating the lemon yellow bonbon, you can easily kick six feet above your head. How delightful, exclaimed Clarabelle. 
who was truly surprised and stunned by the creativity of the chemist. You are certainly a most clever sorcerer, as well as a considerate pharmacist. And she held out her hand for the box. Ahem, said the wise one. Eject, please. Oh, yes, to be sure. <laughs> How silly of me to forget it, she said, all flustered and excited. He held the box and its precious contents in his own hand while she signed a check for a large amount of money, after which he allowed her to hold the box herself. Are you sure you've made them strong enough? It usually takes a great deal to affect me. Oh, my dear, my only fear is that I have made them too strong, for this is the first time I have ever been called upon to prepare these wonderful confections, so do take care with them, won't you? Don't worry, said Clarabelle. The stronger they act, the better I shall act myself. After saying those words, she left Dr. Dawes and went out to continue her day's errands. When she entered a department store, she got so excited with the choices she made in accessories for her hair, for a girl on stage would have to look her very best, that upon paying for her purchases, she forgot the precious box of candies and left it right there, lying on the ribbing counter. And off she went to the next store. Oh, dear. She probably passed by a little girl as she left in her hurry, for who should come up to the counter just a short time later but little Bessie Bostwick, who wished to buy a hair ribbon. She laid her parcels from her day's shopping beside the box. Then, when she had signed her purchases to her family's account, she gathered up the box of bonbons with her other bundles and trotted off home with it, quite unaware that she had done so. It wasn't until Bessie had hung her coat in the hall closet and counted up her parcels that she realized she had one too many. Ooh, she said with curiosity and delight, I wonder what this is. Then she opened it and exclaimed, Why, it's a box of candy. Someone must have mislaid it. I should take it back, but really, it's too small a matter to worry about, as there are only a few pieces. So she dumped the contents of the box into a candy dish that stood upon the hall table, and picking out the chocolate piece, she was fond of chocolates most of all, ate it daintily while she examined her purchases and laid out her hair ribbons all in a row on the coffee table in the parlor. Now, she had not bought many things, for Bessie was only twelve years old and was not yet trusted by her parents to spend much money at the stores. But while she tried on one of her hair ribbons, she suddenly felt a great desire to play the piano, and the desire at last became so overpowering that she crossed the parlor and opened the glorious shiny black grand piano. Now, we should tell you 
that up until this day, the little girl had, with great difficulty, managed to learn two pieces, which she usually executed, and truly, executed is the right verb here, as she pretty much killed any music within them, with a jerky movement of her right hand and a left hand that forgot to keep up and so made dreadful discords. But this time, this time was different. For under the influence of the chocolate bonbon, she sat down and ran her fingers lightly over the keys, producing such exquisite harmony that she was filled with amazement at her own performance. Ah, but that was only the prelude. The next moment she dashed into Beethoven's Seventh Sonata and played it magnificently. How she wished her piano teacher was here to witness her sudden greatness. Her mother, hearing the unusual burst of melody emanating from their little-used piano, came downstairs to see what musical guest had arrived. But when she discovered it was her own little daughter who was playing so divinely, she nearly had a fainting spell, to which the poor woman was often susceptible. And so she plunked herself down upon a sofa until it passed. My goodness, she thought, as she fanned herself with a handkerchief. Meanwhile, Bessie played one piece after another with untiring energy. She loved music and now found that all she needed to do was to sit at the piano and listen and watch her hands twinkle over the keyboard. Twilight deepened in the room, and Bessie's father came home through the massive oak front door, hung up his hat and overcoat, and placed his umbrella in the rack. Then he peeked into the parlor to see who was playing the piano so beautifully. Great Caesar! he exclaimed. But the mother came to him softly, with her finger on her lips, and whispered, Don't interrupt her, John. Our child seems to be in a trance. Did you ever hear such superb music? Why, she's a child prodigy, gasped the astounded father. It's, it's wonderful. As they stood listening, their first dinner guest arrived at the door. It was the senator, a high-ranking politician of the finest breeding, who had at last graced them with a positive response to their long-standing dinner invitation. Bessie's mother ushered him in, and before she had taken his coat, another guest, a Yale professor, a man of deep learning and scholarly achievements, invited to add sparkle and intellect to the evening's conversation, also joined the party. Bessie played on, and the four adults stood in a huddled but silent and amazed group listening to the music while waiting for the call to the dinner table. As they stood there, Mr. Bostwick, who was hungry, picked up the bonbon dish that lay on the table beside him and ate the pink candy. The professor was watching him 
so Mr. Bostwick courteously held the dish toward him. The professor ate the lemon-yellow piece, and the senator reached out his hand and took the lavender piece. But the senator did not eat his candy. He was afraid it might spoil the dinner, whose delicious aroma was wafting from the kitchen. So he decided to have it later, when he was burning the midnight oil, writing at home, and he put it in his pocket. Mrs. Bostwick, still intently listening to her precocious daughter, without thinking what she did, took the remaining piece, which was the white one, and slowly devoured it. The dish was now empty, and Clarabelle Sud's precious bonbons were gone forever. All of a sudden, Mr. Bostwick, who was a big man, began to sing in a shrill, tremolo soprano voice. Now, had it been the same song that Bessie was pounding out on the keyboard, it might have been a little less shocking, only a little. But no, it was not the same song at all, and the discord was so shocking that the professor smiled. The senator put his hands over his ears. Mrs. Bostwick cried in a horrified voice, William! Her husband continued to sing, as if endeavoring to emulate a famous opera star, and paid no attention whatever to his wife or his guests. Fortunately, the maid alerted everyone that dinner was served, and Mrs. Bostwick dragged Bessie from the piano and ushered her guests into the dining room. Mr. Bostwick followed, but continued to sing, this time the last rose of summer, as if it had been an encore demanded by a thousand delighted fans. Poor Mrs. Bostwick was at her wit's end at this display by her husband of such undignified actions, and wondered what she might do to control him. The professor seemed more grave than usual. The senator's face wore an offended expression, and Bessie kept moving her fingers as if she still wanted to play the piano. A frantic Mrs. Bostwick managed to get them all seated, although her husband had broken into another aria. Then the maid brought in the soup. When she carried a bowl to the professor, he cried in an excited voice, Hold it higher, higher, I say. And springing up, he gave it a sudden kick that sent it nearly to the ceiling. And from way up there, the dish descended to scatter soup over Bessie and the maid and to smash in pieces upon the crown of the professor's bald head. At this atrocious act, the senator rose from his seat with an exclamation of horror and glared at his hostess. For some time, Mrs. Bostwick had been staring straight ahead with a dazed expression. But now, catching the senator's icy stare, she bowed gracefully and began reciting Alfred Lord Tennyson's famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, 
in forceful tones. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the six hundred. The senator shuddered and stared in disbelief. Never had he witnessed such a disgraceful display in a decent private family. He felt that his reputation was at stake, and being the only sane person, apparently, in the room, there was no one to whom he might appeal. The maid had run away to cry hysterically in the kitchen. Mr. Bostwick was singing, Oh, Promise Me. The professor was trying to kick the globes off the chandelier. Mrs. Bostwick had switched her recitation to The Boy Stood on the Burning Deck. And Bessie had run into the parlor and was pounding out the overture from The Flying Dutchman. The senator, afraid that in a moment he was sure to go crazy himself, saw himself out. He slipped away from the turmoil, and catching up his hat and coat in the hall, hurried out the front door and into the blessedly quiet evening. That night, he sat up writing a political speech he was to deliver the next afternoon at Faneuil Hall. But his experiences at the Bostwicks had shaken him so badly that he could scarcely collect his thoughts. Every few lines he would pause and shake his head pityingly as he remembered the strange things he had seen and heard in that usually respectable home. The next day he met Mr. Bostwick in the street, but passed him by with a stony glare of oblivion. He felt he really could not afford to know this gentleman in the future. Now, Mr. Bostwick was naturally indignant at the direct snub, yet in his mind lingered a faint memory of some quite unusual occurrences at his dinner party the evening before. So he hardly knew whether he dared resent the senator's treatment or not. The political meeting was the big event of the day, for the senator's eloquence was well known in Boston. So the grand hall was crowded with people, and in one of the front rows sat the Bostwick family, with the learned Yale professor beside them. They all looked tired and pale, as if they had passed a rather draining and eventful evening, and the senator was so unnerved and rattled by seeing them that he refused to look in their direction a second time. While the mayor was introducing him, the great man sat fidgeting in his chair and happened to put his thumb and finger into his vest pocket. There he found the lavender-colored bonbon he had placed in his pocket the evening before. This may clear my throat, thought the senator, and slipped the bonbon into his mouth. A few minutes afterwards he arose before the vast audience which greeted him with enthusiastic applause. My friends, began the senator in a grave voice, this is a most impressive and important occasion. Then he paused, balanced himself upon his left foot, 
and kicked his right leg into the air in the way favored by ballet dancers. There was a hum of amazement and horror from the spectators. But did this stop the senator in his tracks? <laughs> no, it did not. In fact, he seemed to be caught up in such a frenzy of unfettered joy that he did not even appear to notice it. He whirled around upon the tips of his toes, kicked right and left in a graceful manner, and startled a bald-headed man in the front row by blowing a kiss in his direction. Well, just then, Clarabelle Suds, remember her? The girl who went to Dr. Dawes for the magic candies to begin with? Well, didn't she happen to be present? She let loose a scream and sprang to her feet. Pointing an accusing finger at the dancing senator, she cried out in a loud voice, That's the man who stole my bonbons! Seize him! Arrest him! Don't let him escape! But the ushers rushed her out of the hall, thinking she had gone suddenly insane and the senator's friends grabbed him firmly by the arms, and, yes, the legs, too, and carried him out the stage entrance to the street, where they put him into an open carriage and instructed the driver to take him straight home to bed. The effect of the magic bonbon was still powerful enough to control the poor senator, who stood up upon the rear seat of the carriage and danced energetically all the way home, to the delight of the crowd of small boys and girls who followed the carriage, and to the grief of the sober-minded citizens, who shook their heads sadly and whispered that another good man had gone wrong. It took the senator several months to recover from the shame and humiliation of this escapade, and, curiously enough, he never had the slightest idea what had induced him to act in so extraordinary a manner. Perhaps it was fortunate. The last bonbon had now been eaten, for they might easily have caused considerably more trouble than they did, when you think about it. And what became of Clarabelle? Well, of course she went back to the wise chemist and signed a check for another box of magic bonbons. But these she must have taken better care of, for she went on to become a famous star of the stage and screen. How famous? Well, of course we can't tell you her name, for that would hardly be respectable now, would it? And so, says author L. Frank Baum, as we wrap up this tale of the magic bonbons, this story should teach us the folly of condemning others for actions that we do not understand, for we never know what may happen to ourselves. Oh, and it may also serve as a hint to be careful about leaving parcels in public places, and, incidentally, to leave other people's packages alone. <laughs> And with that, may you drift off and have just the sweetest 
lavender-colored dreams. <laughs>